who here is a bit jealous of Mary and Joseph? I think I am. Has anybody had the opportunity, the joy of trying to find the perfect name for something? Me and Courtney deliberated for quite some time trying to find out the name of our first dog, Lila. It took quite some time, but we found it and we loved it. But obviously, naming a child is much more involved. Right? We want to find the perfect name for a child. And we deliberate over this name of a child for, for sometimes hours and hours or days and days because we intrinsically know that names are important. They, they're almost sacred. They oftentimes tell us something very special and very intimate about the person who owns that name, who is going to take that name. And this is certainly the case for the Hebrew people. The Hebrew language is full of meaning. The names that are given to people in the Hebrew language are full of meaning. Example after example can be given from the Old Testament about how the name of the person was a very fitting description of who they were and how they got on in the world. Um, for a simple example, the very first man created, God gave him the name Adam. And that's fitting because Adam essentially means man or mankind. He held on to that name and he was Adam. But a very good example is Jacob of someone who had to live up to a name in the Hebrew language. Jacob was named so because he came out of the womb grasping on to the heel of his brother. The name Jacob literally means heel grabber. But much more deep than that, it goes out through his life until God in his wisdom changes Jacob's name. See, Jacob uh, was found over and over trying to grasp at what Esau had. And he finally, ultimately, tricked Esau, stole his, stole his birthright from his father and, and took the took the blessing of his father. See, Jacob did a great job of living up to his name. But of all the names given in history, there's been none more full of meaning. There has, been, there has never been a man to live up to his name better or more completely than the Son of God did when he was named Jesus. You see, Jesus, his name means Savior. And Mary and Joseph didn't have to deliberate over Jesus' name because they got lucky. An angel came to them and said, you're going to name your son Jesus. And they're like, we were worried. We didn't know what to call him. But as we think of this day, the, this day in church uh, history and the calendar uh, we have two things to consider. We have one, it's the name of Jesus' day. And the other, it's the blessed circumcision of Jesus' day, of Jesus' eighth day. But when we contemplate Jesus' name, what we, when we do that, when we bring Jesus' name to bear on our life, I want us to, I want us to be able to think and hear 
what his name truly means to us. That every time we hear it, we're moved to adoration and praise. This is my hope for us today. So let's begin at this, at the simple idea of Savior. What does it mean for someone to be a Savior? Maybe even a hero. Terms like these are loaded with meaning, and, and the name really finds its meaning in what is accomplished by this person. Certain terms like this are judge. A judge is called a judge because he, what, he judges. A leader is called a leader because he leads, and a president presides. Right? So within the name of this person, their action, their activity is found and is given meaning. And we can see this when we ask a few questions, when we dig a little bit deeper. A judge, we want to know, what are you judging? There's a situation that has developed to where somebody with wisdom is called upon to bring a verdict. And this judge has value because of his ability to judge and, and the outcome of what is being judged of what has been judged. A leader, we ask, who is being led? To who and to where and for what end are we being led? A president, we need to know what kind of counsel or what are the people that you are presiding over? How important are the decisions that you are making for this people? So a leader and a president have value based upon the ability and the action that they, that they have and the outcome that is achieved. The answers to these questions reveal much about the person and the situation. And, and when, when we get the details, a greater sense of value is given. And the same goes for the role of Savior. The dictionary says that one who saves someone from something or someone or something from danger. So therefore, there's a situation that exists that is threatening harm or uh, or some kind of grave situation that requires a savior. The epic superhero, Superman. He is only, he is only Superman when there is a need for a savior. When someone cries out for help, Superman or Clark Kent, he takes off his, his uh, costume because he's really Superman. So the costume is Clark Kent. Not, not his suit. He takes off his costume and he becomes Superman and he saves people. But his power is only recognized during that act of saving. And so just like the judge, the leader, and the president, we ask of the Savior, for what reason have you come? And that's what we're going to focus on today. What is the purpose of Christ's coming? How does Jesus live out his wonderful name of Savior is what we want to look at today. All through Advent, we have been anticipating and awaiting the coming Savior. The incarnation, the Emmanuel, God with us. The story of the angel coming to Mary and saying, you will name him Jesus, and also to the shepherds in our text in Luke today, they proclaim the purpose for Jesus' coming. A Savior has been born to you this day. 
Yet at this point in the story, we're kind of still unclear as to how this is all going to play out. Surely some people had an idea about it because they understood the prophets or they thought they understood the prophets that this baby was going to be a savior. So in a roundabout way, we're going to get to answering two questions today that are all wrapped up into that one question, why did Jesus come? We're going to ask, from what are we being saved? And we're also going to answer, to what are we being saved? I feel that that's very, very important. There's a good distinction there. From what and to what are we being saved? So in this gospel reading, we arrive at the story that Luke is telling on the eighth day of Jesus' life. And it says, at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And it's not an obvious step, but it is a major step in God's plan of salvation for us. You see, he's, he's only eight days old, and he's already begun to save the world. It's pretty awesome. I don't think Superman was able to do that. So here, as we dive in, we'll see how Jesus has already begun to live out his name, and he's only eight days old. So how is Jesus' circumcision and his life of Savior tied together? Glad you asked. We learn from the book of Genesis about the, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, given to Abraham. And this was a sign of fidelity to God and, and actually a sign to them that they needed God's grace in their life. For without a cutting away, they could not be in the presence of God. They could not be in the covenant with God. And Genesis 17 is where we find it. And he says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." So therefore, since the time of Abraham, circumcision has been an, a, a fundamental part of the covenant between God and his people. And this act was ratified over and over and over again by the patriarchs. They lived up to this. They were very obedient in doing this. And it's all throughout the Old Scripture as well, uh, the Old Testament as well. But, and this is a very, very big but, there was always the idea that, that it was not simply a cutting away of an external part of your skin that brought you into covenant with God. It, it had always been an issue of an unclean heart. Always. And even right alongside in the Old Testament, this was the case. Moses knew this. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, 
Moses is exhorting the people, and he says to them, Yet let the Lord, that the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. But circumcise your heart, therefore, and be no longer stubborn. The idea of the heart problem has always been present. But Moses knew and recognized something else as well that is very, very important. Moses knew that the circumcision of the heart was not something that we accomplish on our own. Moses declared again in the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, towards the end of Deuteronomy, he foreshadowed the amazing work of the new covenant when he said this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. They knew that simply following the ritual of the fleshly sign did not transform them into a sinless, selfless, God-loving, God-honoring, perfect people. They had a heart problem, and they needed God's grace to do heart surgery on them. And you know this is the same for you and I today. We can't get away with simple gestures or physical signs. This isn't a perfect illustration, but I think you'll get the point. When I was 19 years old, I joined the Air Force. And at this particular part in my uh, life, I, I followed in the footsteps of wicked Israel and Judah, and even in our New Testament context, we can say Galatia, like the people in Galatians. I had begun to forsake my Christian heritage, the way that I was brought up. And so, in an attempt to keep myself from straying too far, or maybe even to give some kind of honor, homage to my previously dedicated life to God, I decided to get a tattoo. I got a tattoo of a cross on my shoulder, and on a banner draped over the cross, it says, God's Army. So I was in this Air Force, but I was in God's army, amen, right? So like I thought that, I thought that as I got this tattoo, I might somehow be restricted or be restrained from going out and living any way that I wanted to. But even with this tattoo and this tattoo and this tattoo and this tattoo, all of them somehow spiritually significant, I still ran off. I still did what an evil heart does, right? I strayed. You see, no tattoo on my body could have ever made me a better Christian. It may serve as art. I really like my tattoos, and I I do like tattoos. I, I think I'm a proponent of them. Some of you might disagree, but... They're beautiful art. They could be seen as beautiful art. They may even be uh, able to help me relate to other people who have tattoos. And it may even someday prompt a gospel discussion because other persons might ask me about them and what they mean, and I can maybe begin to share the gospel with them. But these tattoos could never have kept me from straying, and they certainly could have never done the heart work 
that only God's grace can do. And I think this is what Paul is getting at when he is preaching in the letter of Romans. I like to think of Paul's letters as preaching. It's very good. In chapter, through, in chapter 3, he is getting at the people. He's really getting at them. And he's reminding them of the Scriptures. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And he goes on to teach, all Jews, now these are the circumcised, and Greeks, the uncircumcised, all are under sin. And that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what he's getting at. When God gave them the sign of the covenant of circumcision, that's a part of his law that says, this is reminding you of your sin, and you need me for grace. The the law was never intended to make people righteous in God's sight. It is a tool of God in the old covenant that reinforced the people's need for God's grace. Only the heart that has been touched by God's flint knife of spiritual circumcision is capable of loving God, is capable of living for God in the way that God has designed for us to live. And that this is the gospel, everyone. This is the grace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. We are brought into relationship with God through this multifaceted, and gracious activity in Jesus' Jesus' wonderful name that means Savior. And as he continues in Romans 3, he says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile are justified by and through faith. The Jews thought that because they possessed the law and because they had this sign of the covenant in their flesh that they were safe. But Paul says it is the law of faith that matters most. The sign of the covenant was simply a sign. What they needed was faith. Faith that God would give them a a righteousness that they could not have and could not possess outside of God's grace. But how would that grace come? How would God save us through faith rather than through works? And this is the point where we find ourselves on the eighth day of Jesus being circumcised. This is where the circumcision of Jesus and his living out his name begin to intersect. Like all other Jewish boys, on the eighth day he was circumcised. That's what we read today. No one could say that he didn't follow the letter of the law. He was from the seed of Abraham, and so his parents were obligated by the law to have Jesus circumcised. And so in this way, we think that Jesus has been made to be in covenant with God. Yet there is is one critical uh, detail here, and it changes everything, and it mustn't be missed. In stark contrast to all Jewish boys and all other humans ever, Jesus did not need God to circumcise his heart. See, Jesus himself is the righteousness righteousness that we need. So when Jesus went through the ritual and he took the sign given to sinful humanity, 
he successfully rendered the sign insufficient. It is no longer faith in the sign, but faith in him who fulfilled the sign. God saves us through faith by grace, by giving us Jesus to fulfill the law. The same principle continues throughout Jesus' mission of saving us. It, it, it leads Jesus all the way to the cross when he dies a death meant for a sinner. When he was judged as a sinner improperly and he took, and he took death on when he went on the cross, he broke death's curse. He took away its sting. The power of law the power of the law and the curse of death cannot withstand the weight of a sinless person. Do you remember the amazing scene in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan is willingly walking to the great stone table? He's led to the great stone table and he lays down on it, and he's bound by ropes, and everybody knew that if he wanted, he could easily break those ropes. Everybody there was terrified that Aslan was present. But, that, but breaking free, showing his might and his strength wasn't the plan. That wasn't what him and the witch agreed to. And so when, when Aslan laid on the table and the witch raised the knife and the knife came down and killed Aslan, all fell silent. And the next morning, Lucy and Susan are sitting there with Aslan. It's cold. Aslan's lifeless on the table. And they feel it's time to leave. They get up and they begin to walk away. And then all of a sudden they hear a crash. And they turn around and they look behind them and the great stone table is split right down the middle. It's broken. And they look and they're, what's going on? And then all of a sudden the sun's rising through the pillars and Aslan appears alive. And they're, they're completely confused. We saw the knife go into you, Susan asked. And he's, he began to explain to them. The witch did not know what she was doing. She didn't understand the true, uh, the true reality of the curse. And Aslan explained to them, he said that, you see, the curse of death could not hold, excuse me, let's see, the curse of death could not handle the willful sacrifice of a sinless person. And then he said, and death itself would be reversed. And here is Aslan alive. And this is how God made salvation come through faith by grace rather than by works of the law. The path of salvation is taught again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The perishable must be clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. 
Then the saying that is written will come alive. Death has been swallowed up in your victory. I hear Aslan saying this. Death is swallowed up in your victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. What does he say next? But thanks be to God. He has given us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have victory in this way, and God accomplishes salvation in this way because Jesus came to take on perishable, though he was from the imperishable. He took on the likeness of mortals, though he was from immortality. And so you asked me earlier, how does Jesus' circumcision, what does this have to do with his act of saving us? Can you see it now? It is the grace of God that on the eighth day, a little baby born without sin began fulfilling his purpose as Savior through being circumcised like any old sinner. God came in the flesh, and, and in the likeness of sinful humanity, he participated voluntarily in all aspects of the law, even the curse of death. And by doing so, he fulfilled the law and destroyed the power of death. And this is what Paul follows. He, 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 he proclaims, grace by faith you are saved, not because of works, not because of ourselves, but because it is the gift of God. And this is the gift that we are no longer bound by the power of sin, which is the law. We no longer fear death because we are made alive with Christ. So to close, let's answer the question we set before us in the beginning. What reason did our Savior come? For starters, he came to save us from sin and free us from slavery. In Galatians, Paul says this beautifully. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be encumbered once more by a yoke of slavery. The context that Paul is talking about here in this letter is circumcision. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. But by faith, we eagerly, we eagerly await through the Spirit the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. All that matters is faith expressed through love. So how precious does this make Jesus' name to us? When you pray in his name, lean in to the salvation that he has secured for you. When you shout his name in praise, declare boldly what he has done for you. And when you cry out his name in need, be assured of the providence and the presence because all barriers of sin have been removed. His grace has destroyed them all. So today, as we recall his circumcision and his wonderful name, the name above all names, I hope you have been given a fresh awareness of the work our Savior accomplished. He saved us from our sin and the obligation of upholding a law that could never do the job it needed to do. 
and it was impossible to uphold anyways. And he not only saved us from sin, but he saved us to a wonderfully intimate relationship with him. The very thing that he has desired from the very beginning. Through his grace and the power of his name, we have become his people. We are truly cleansed in our hearts and being brought into eternal life. And we are free to live as we are meant to be. Free to live in true relationship with God. So this is why he came. These are the truths that we must always remember and recall when we hear the name Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me pray. Father, give us faith to forever see your grace, that it is your grace that we need. Not sign, not ritual, not, not tattoos. That through your Son, our Savior, we are cleansed and brought into eternal union with you. And it is in the most precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.